0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Matchbox Creative, a podcast where we talk about ideas, inspiration, the creative process, and exploring our creative potential. Here we'll connect with creatives of all kinds, hear about their story, their life, and the experience and lessons learned along the way. I'm Mark Daniel, a graphic designer and photographer, and your host as we tackle this creative journey together. In today's episode, we're going to continue exploring areas of creativity a bit outside the usual, we're taking a deeper look into board game design. If you've taken a detour to the board game section of your local Target lately, you've noticed there's a lot more choices out there. But more doesn't always mean better. Designing a fun, challenging game that keeps you coming back over and over is a complicated project, one that involves a lot of different types of creativity. And that unusual creative process holds some great lessons for all of us. To understand how a game grows from an idea into a social experience you share with others, today we're talking with my friend, Jim Nally. In the last few years, Jim has started designing, building, and developing a number of different games. Together, we'll talk about developing an idea, building prototypes, game mechanics, and the essentials for a successful game. I'm definitely a bit of a board game nerd, so this conversation was really fascinating and exciting for me. But let's get right to it. Here's my conversation. With Jim. Welcome to another episode of Matchbox Creative. Um, I'm here with my friend Jim Nally and... So today we're going to talk a little bit about a bit about game design and development. Um, Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Mark. I
1: am very excited to chat today. Tell us a little bit about um, just yourself, your story and how you got into game design for me, game design is an interesting thing. So this is a podcast about creatives and creative thinking and process and, and all those things. And I would not naturally think of myself as a, as a creative person. So, uh, I've got a varied background in kind of college and those early years in grad school studied theology and psychology and economics and sociology and all the all the things kind of in that social sciences, um, with a bit more of a a mathy bent to it. And then I actually worked in ministry for a couple of years, found my way into digital marketing and kind of my day job right now is running digital advertising, which none of those things, um, are kind of the traditional creative outlets or creative classes, if you will. But I process the world. and a unique way. I mean, not, there are plenty of people like me, but you know, we all have our own perspective that we bring to things.
0: Exactly. And I
1: found for me, um, everyone needs some sort of creative outlet, some sort of way to take things that are in their head in their mind, um, and in their heart and find a way to try to package them up and express them for, for somebody else so that other people can share in that experience. And it's kind of a, innate human thing that we all need to find with. So a few years ago, I'd always kind of enjoyed games and, and that sort of thing. Um, I had gotten we we have two younger kids. They're six and nine. Um, but when they're really little, you go through a season of you're just in survival mode. I was starting to come out of that and kind of rediscover myself, as a lot of parents do, once I started to have a little bit more energy and, and space to think. Um, Then there was a one particular night when my wife was at home and on the outside, things were looking pretty good with our life, like getting some kind of promotions and more responsibilities at work. Uh, The kids were growing up and they were adorable and relatively happy and healthy and and all the things like that. We were in a much better financial position than we'd ever been, Uh, but I still was feeling very just exhausted and beat up and defeated and just frustrated that like a lot of the doing the right things, working hard, have building a stable family life, plugged into some good um, kind of church and friendship communities. You can always do more, but we were doing better than we had the last couple of years. Right. But just still hadn't found those things that, that had clicked. So anyway, so I'm processing yeah. through all that. And I start to kind of just think about what would that look like in a game? I don't know why that thought entered my head, but I was like, mm-hmm. I bet I could make a game out of this. And it's kind of like when you roll a dice, you know, or a die, you know what to expect within a range, right? Like if you roll a six, sided right. die, you're going to get between a one and a six. On average, you're going to get like a 3.5, which isn't really a number, but you, you get the idea. Right. Uh, but sometimes you're going to roll a one. Sometimes you're going to roll a six. And I'm like, that's, that's kind of how my life is right now. Basically the idea that we can control what we put into a system. We can't control what we put out of it without going into all the rule sets and all that sort of thing. It ended up making this, the system that described what I was feeling in my life. And I kind of over three or four hours entered this fugue state where I got out all these little pieces of paper scribbled down. Uh, what these things were, made little counters out of scraps of post-it notes. So there were different colors and all this kind of stuff, got some dice out and laid them all out. Uh, And it was pretty fun. Now, I don't think it was fun enough to be a product. And that's a thing we'll talk about a little bit later, like what that actually means in a game. But it it was a fun system that I knew I could go to my wife or a couple of my friends with. And after some iterations, like three or four days later, like I had a game that worked, that had a clear a uh, clear system to engage with, had a clear outcome, and it helped me process my life a little bit better. And it, I like didn't solve any of it, but it gave me some language and a framework in a way that helped me connect my experience to other people around me. And that's a very different kind of practical outcome, but the same root of what I think most creatives are trying to do, whether they're writing, whether they're drawing, whether they're painting, whether they're doing whatever, making music. Um, We all have kind of those unique experiences now with how I process the world that happens to come out more through how systems play. And I need some very clear kind of boundaries in a sandbox, which developing a rule set is that for me. Um, So it's taking something that's chaotic, putting some arbitrary limits on it playing within those limits to create something beautiful and engaging and meaningful that you can communicate and experience through. So yeah, that's kind of how I fell my way into game design. Uh, since then, I've, I shouldn't, I feel like a fraud being a guest on a podcast. I was like a game designer. <laughs> I've never published anything. Uh, this is still purely a hobby for me. Um, now I've made a uh, probably half a dozen prototypes that are reasonably fun games that I'll get out with my friends. And there's a couple of those that I've shopped around to publishers and that sort of thing. Right. And I've had, sorry, were you asking a question? No, no,
0: just agreeing with you. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, but I have, I've had a few dozen kind of game ideas that are in like a giant long uh, list of notes of anytime I'm like struggling with something or find an interesting system or find something I don't quite understand. I find that if I try to process it in terms of a game, whether it works or not, or whether it's fun or not, um, it helps me understand it. And then sometimes it's a good enough thing or a simple enough idea that I can then turn that into a, a practical artifact that I can share with some of my friends and have them share that experience with me and and all that kind
0: of thing too. So. That's I mean, that's a really fascinating and I mean unique way of looking at the world and trying to reframe a problem. Um, So would you, this is probably opening up a can of worms, but would you then say that life is a game? Like that you can look (laughs) at life, all the different aspects of life through the lens of it being a game? Uh, You can. Um, (laughs) Should you? Probably not. (laughs) Should you? Probably not.
1: Uh, I think it is helpful. Like most creative pursuits, uh, it is important to recognize that it is not all encompassing. that it is a different lens to look at life through. Like there are things in other kind of more classic forms of art that are pure emotional expressions that you're not going to be able to to fully capture in a game. I think games are really useful in understanding how to interact with life. And you can kind of strip away some of the noise around stuff and get down to just the core of what makes the thing interesting and then where i think um so two things here one uh i think a big part of any creative process is understanding what's kind of in bounds and what's out of bounds and giving yourself very clear constraints can be one of the most liberating and freeing things for uh anyone's mind to process anything really yeah uh, but when totally you do that you kind of have to abstract out some of the other elements of your life. And so it's not going to be a perfect picture of everything when you kind of narrow into what this one very kind of clearly defined box of things is.
0: Uh, Right. But it is a useful lens to kind of look through kind of way to abstract something that can be very complicated and look at it in a different way. Yeah. And the, the lens that I think that's a great, segue
1: into kind of my second thing. I think the unique lens that games bring to the human experience that a lot of the other creative expressions don't is a sense of agency. So uh, usually when you're reading or listening to music or whatever it is, that's kind of another creative expression, especially if you're engaging with someone else's output for that. Now, this is this is different than say you're actually a musician in a jazz trio and you're improvising. Like that's, that's a small subset of musical expression, but it's one that kind of captures the thing that I think gaming does at its core across the board, if that makes sense, where when you engage with a game um, you're not just listening to someone else's story and having to kind of abstract your place into it, or you're not like, just trying to understand their other experience, you're actively making choices and you're actively determining the outcome, at least in a good game right? Uh, of what's, what's going to happen. And when you do that, the psychology of that's just a little, it's a different piece of it. It may not be as um, often, and this is going to be a broad brush that there's exceptions to, there always are. Uh, right. It may not be as deep or as like singularly expressive as like the perfect uh chord progression that leads to like come yeah whatever kind of creative thing you want to do um but because you can make choices in that space you can internalize that just in a different way you can create kind of instead of having to observe someone else's avatar like you really inhabit the avatar of your character in a well-designed game that's you know working in that way, uh, that just brings a, a unique piece of value that I think a lot of other creative outlets either do only in kind of pockets or don't aren't able to just naturally
0: do as well. Right, like the, the medium of a game really invites the audience into it as a participant, as an active participant versus a passive consumer. Would yeah. that be like a good yeah, way to summarize absolutely. it, right? Right, because I mean, like you can't just you can't really experience a game without playing it i mean you you can understand box, it you can understand but it but you yeah. don't really fully experience it until yeah. you play it and and you understand usually it play it that. with other people too exactly like, too a, so it's yeah Inherently it becomes a group. Yeah. yeah it becomes a group experience a communal experience and so that's a really interesting call out because i think you can like with other art forms like music for example like you experience it together but it's it's still sort of like this one-way street. Like it's not sort of like if you picture sort of like a triangle and you've got like one point and it's got multiple arrows to different, the different audience members, it's very, still a two-way street just to multiple different, yeah. Yeah, different yeah. people versus a group where it's like interacting with each other and the game together and it becomes this hopefully fun and interactive social experience. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about, like, how did you, when you're building out these other game concepts, what inspires these ideas? What is kind of the trigger? And then, like, how does that process get started?
1: Several of my more interesting games um, have come from kind of a similar experience to that first one. I was really struggling to understand something. Like, so let's take, for example, I mentioned kind of imposter syndrome as a thing that. uh, Yep fascinates me it's an interesting piece of kind of human psychology and where that goes uh so i started with the question of is there a way to express in game form the feeling that you know you have something of value but you don't know where that value is necessarily in relation to others and especially um a lot of times it's easier to see that value in other people than it is to see it in yourself. So I designed this quick little card game where you kind of randomly deal out all the cards. And instead of looking at your own cards, you hold all your cards backwards and you can see everyone else's cards, but you can't see your own. And then you're trying to functionally with, yeah, you're trying to functionally guess uh, what cards you have in your hand. And it turns into this like push your luck thing. If you're always trying to kind of one up other people where you think you're saying like, I think I have at least the nine in the suit and someone else is like, I think I have the 10 and then you got to kind of push up. And then if you go right. too far, you end up losing points, uh, which turns into this fun, snappy little card game. But at the at the beginning of it, it was just asking the question of like imposter syndrome is this weird thing. I want to understand what? Um, how I can better recognize it and how I can kind of boil down what it really is to a system that I can communicate with other people. And then it happened to turn into, oh, that system works. Um, It's kind of fun. When I do this with other people, they also have a few laughs and they kind of
0: enjoy the experience. So we should do this a few times. Hmm. So would you say then that most of the time when you're working on a game, you start with the idea of the game mechanics right as far as like what would be the fun like thinking through ideas of like how the game operates the nuts and bolts and then you sort of build the other things around it as far as like the story or like the types of characters or
1: yeah th- what I would the would generally say like, that right
0: the yeah, the thing i would say
1: like mechanics are probably the second step the first thing okay. i usually have is what's the what's the feeling or the thought that I want to explore? And then like, it's almost like a 1.5 is the mechanic is the mechanics, um, at least on the ones that, that work well, where I say, what's the feeling, the question, the thought I'm trying to explore. And then what's a mechanic that really expresses that. So like the mechanic is usually the how to the, to the why, so to speak. Um, but when it comes to like nuts and bolts of a rule set, yes, absolutely. Mechanic is kind of the first thing that I build off of. And then I start to look at, okay, if this is kind of the core mechanic, who is the player in the game? Kind of what's their character that they're going to inhabit? Are there going to be other characters in the game? What are what are the things that make sense if there's a particular theme or a particular, like one of my games is about uh, cattle herding in the in the Wild West. And so that led to a Like once I had kind of my core, what the herding mechanic looks like, I'm like, what else makes sense in this world that I can help kind of smooth out the rough edges or flesh out this kind of core loop a little bit more. And so then it's like, oh, what would a rattlesnake look like? in this? And then you can kind of come up with a secondary mechanic to work with that or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, I think some of the most successful games that I can think of, like when you really try to boil down what's the essence of this game and what makes it fun to play what makes it successful successful is it's really the the style of play it's like the interaction and it's yeah and the game designers have like built this kind of house around that to kind of capture the imagination like make it compelling make it fun to play but it's really at the end of the day like it's the battleship it's like it's it's about hiding you know your ships and you know how long can you go before the other person finds them right and then you could take the same mechanics of that and make it into you'd put all kinds of different stories around that and it would still essentially be the same game but everybody like the visuals of that structure is what captures people imagine people's imagination and makes makes the game memorable
1: like so many of us start with kind of a core idea and that core idea can be kind of devoid of time and space sometimes it's really tied to a like my cow herding game's not going to make sense in some dystopian sci-fi theme with like what like it's it's cows right. out and a yep. uh, but so many kind of pieces of what really makes a game special don't have anything to do with the visual design or kind of the the theme that sits on top of it, but a lot of times, what end users and end players and consumers uh, grok onto first is that visual piece. It's the table presence of the thing. It's the the bright, beautiful colors, or it's the the way that that theme really highlights and enhances and improves what that core feeling that the designer was was looking at right um, and how all that all that plays together but i've seen several games where they start off in one theme and before they're published or even after they're published they get several different iterations that are totally different totally different worlds totally different themes and i'm talking about a lot more than like the Star Wars Monopoly or whatever, where it's like the exact right. same thing. I mean, they'll like change and tweak ever so slightly just some of the mechanics of the game to fit into a new universe or fit into a new a new headspace, and they can reach a totally different set of consumers um, in a really unique and interesting way.
0: Yeah, I think it would be really neat, too, to take like a game prototype and try with like, you know, where you've got the mechanics more or less worked out, but then you try putting like different sort of clothes on it or a different Mm -hmm. frame on it, a visual frame on it, and see what resonates. And if it makes a difference to the audience, how fun it is. Like if you took your um, like cattle wrangling game, which I've also played, which is really fun. And if you tried like stripping it down and putting it within a different context to see if that, how important that is to the success of the game, you know, because there's also games out there obviously that are very there's not really a structure to it. Like you've got Scrabble and there's not really any kind of characters or, you know, or you've got checkers. And some of these games are like classic games that have been around for decades, but there's not really any, yeah, there's no characters or story to it, but they're still successful games. So I think that, you know, speaks volumes to the fact that a game doesn't need to have all of that, but sometimes it's really fun too. There are some games where it's, to the
1: benefit of the game to have as little or as light a theme as as possible i was just talking about this the other day with somebody for one of my favorite games last year was this game called my city by a great designer named reiner knizia um and it's uh for two to four players and you basically are laying little tetromino's tetris pieces of city right. buildings on a little grid uh and it's also what's called a legacy game, meaning after each game, you make permanent changes to the board or to the pieces that you're able to play with it. And then in right. theory, you can really only play through all of the game one time. Now, the game's like 24 different games, so you get more than your money's worth out of the box. And right. then there's a version of like the final board. Uh, a lot of the kind of criticism of this game was that the theme was really just bland because it it literally is like here's a field you get some different colored buildings there's some very loose like vague time and place that it's supposed to be set in but like you don't feel like you're a city planner in medieval europe you just you feel like you're putting tetris pieces on a board yeah Uh, some people were upset by this but like for me that made the game so much better because each individual game only lasted like 15 maybe 20 minutes and if yeah. I had to think through all of the extra character and story and like all that around it, like it would have weighed it down, but it was really snappy and it was really, really fun. But then you go the other extreme to a game like, uh, well, I'll just say Dungeons and Dragons because I think everybody will know what that is. Uh, right. There's really not that much game to it as much as it is just a vehicle for storytelling and the mechanics right. in the game aren't particularly interest and people are going to shoot me for this but like it's <laughs> not a particularly compelling engine or right. sandbox yeah yeah yeah. like it's fun enough it does a good job for facilitating all that storytelling right. but the reason you play that is not to like try to min max your score and to try to like technically best your opponent it's to right. just get so deep into that into that world and if that's what you're looking for like it's it's a slam dunk but if you're looking for i want to play chess against my like you don't want to play dungeons and dragons it's a totally different totally different thing and i think theme has so much to do with well not just what the theme is but also how much work and how much extra development goes into the theme has so much to do with whether you want it to be more about storytelling or whether you want the stories to be more kind of organic and come straight out of the gameplay and that's a, a fun choice that game designers
0: get to make when they're working through the game. Yeah, I think you can argue that it's almost like a spectrum, right? Like you can, you can choose, like you've got table presence and you've got the storytelling and it's, you know, each game kind of fits somewhere on that spectrum of like how well it's doing on these different scores. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, like as you were talking through that, like it made me think of chess, which is like obviously arguably one of the oldest games in history. Yeah. And it's, like, looking down, it has this, it's very simple, right? Like, I mean, as far as, like, the visuals of it. But it also still has, like, this rich kind of medieval, like, Middle Ages, like, aura and visual landscape to it as well. And so I think chess is a brilliant example of just how it, you know, balances the two, where it, like, it gives enough nods to kind of spark the imagination, but it can you can strip all of that away and it's still a compelling game now centuries later. Right. Yeah. And I think there's a really interesting
1: thing with chess particularly because it's been, I mean, it's obviously public domain. It's a couple thousand years old at this point um, in some way, shape or form anyway. Uh, But if you have like, you will never see a Mario chess set at a professional chess tournament. Right, exactly. You show up at the tournament, and somebody pulls out their Hello Kitty chess set. They're going to get laughed out of the room. Uh, The game, or they should, yeah, which (laughs) they should. Uh, But the game is the exact same, right? Like it's you still have pawns, you still have king, queen, what like all the pieces. They still do the exact same thing. It shouldn't change at all how play actually happens. But I think you're right that there's something about the visual design of what kind of a classic chess that is that matters so much for uh players who are used to that expecting that that kind of feel that hominess that comes with sitting down across the table from a nice chess set with some of the the classic design design
0: pieces there you touched on earlier about like a little bit about game mechanics and for those who don't really understand that term game mechanics is really just how a game operates you know like basically the rules, right? Um, How do you, like, what inspires you when you're thinking about game mechanics? And, like, do you, is it, you know, playing other games and be like, ooh, I like how this operates and taking a piece of this and piece of that. Like, if that's, like, the core of the game, how do you pull apart what really works, what is actually fun? Like, how does that all come together? Yeah. Um,
1: When I look at mechanics uh i think of them as like the parts to an engine so one of the mechanics in a game is going to act as the spark plug one of them is going to be the piston one of them is going to be the carburetor like however you want to run that out they in and of themselves may be really interesting and occasionally you'll have a game that's all kind of one quote-unquote mechanic Mm -hmm. almost always there are And there's not a right or wrong number, but there's usually at least a few. Sometimes, like literally dozens, if you're in kind of a big, heavy, complex game. Uh, Usually, the individual pieces may be interesting, but they're usually interesting one time for one game. So a lot of like really special games come out, and it's they're special because they figured out. How to do this one mechanic really well. A classic that a lot of people may be familiar with is a game called like Dominion that started deck building in kind of the the hobby market, which is where you kind of build your custom deck as the game goes, and then you play those cards out. Uh, Dominion is a really special game, not because it's the best deck building game ever, but because it was the first. It kind of took a couple familiar things like cards, turned them on their heads, made them really interesting. But most most games, and especially all of my games, most of them I would not say have a really unique mechanic as much as you have two or three mechanics that you, um, you kind of stick together and figure out figure out what's interesting about how they, they interact. Uh, right. If you think about them in like characters in a story, uh, you have a lot of writers who will say, I just create a few characters, stick them in a room together, and then figure out what they do. And whatever they do is kind of what becomes my story or becomes my book. You can think about mechanics in kind of the same way. They all have things they're good at, things they're bad at situations where they make sense. And then as you refine the story, sometimes you'll pull a mechanic out or you're at another mechanic in, you'll say, Oh, this game is too like, this game is too random. I need to pull out these die rolls. How else can I manage this thing? Uh, Or this game doesn't, I need to feel like I have more control in this game. So should I use cards instead of dice or should I like, and you can work through kind of the strengths and weaknesses of, of each of those mechanics. Um, So dice are always a really interesting randomizer and there's a dozens of different ways you can do them, but depending on what you're the story you're trying to tell with it will tell you whether you want to roll the dice before someone does something, roll the dice after some, body does something you want to roll multiple dice and choose or combine them somehow what size dice how much and all all that sort of
0: I think what that that whole line that whole thread made me think of is kind of the difference between like Monopoly and Settlers of Catan so like <laughs> Monopoly is like everybody knows Monopoly like we like Monopoly was kind of my first love when it comes to board games. Like we played it growing up and just loved it and had fun with it. And, but I know a lot of people hate Monopoly because it feels like you can, one, it can take forever. And then two, you, if the dice don't work in your favor, like you can, after about half an hour and you're like, well, I, there's no way I'm going to win. Like I'm I'm screwed. I hate to spoil it,
1: but I think the, uh, there's been some studies on this and something like i'm gonna these numbers aren't gonna be right but you'll get the idea something like 80 or 90 percent of monopoly games are fully determined once the dice have been rolled twice all around the table wow Like basically once you make that that first loop of the board the game statistically
0: is almost always figured out from that point I who we might have to have an offline conversation with that because I think there's I think part of the fun why I enjoy Monopoly is if you're really good at bargaining yes. and making deals right you can go from a low position and talk somebody into making a great trade for you a bad trade for them and turning your luck around yeah but,
1: absolutely um, but
0: I I would agree with I think part of why pe- people are get frustrated with Monopoly is because how much power the dice have over it. And I think Settlers of Catan is kind of an interesting sort of like evolution. I wouldn't say evolution of the game because it's obviously very different. But it's a similar type of game. And I think what Catan does really well is there's a lot of like checks and balances as far as when a player is doing really, really well. There's a lot of different ways that the other players can basically like, you know, what's the term when you like hit somebody in the leg? um, I don't know what it is. But it would have sounded awesome. But basically, like where you can ha- hamstring, that's it. Oh, yeah, where you can yeah. hamstring like the person in the lead, right? Like yep. you can place the robber on them, or like if you, you know, you can refuse to trade with them. You can, you know, whenever you get to steal cards, you steal cards from them, right? And so I think they learned from Monopoly like nobody wants to play a long game if they don't feel like they have a chance, yep. right? And so a really nicely balanced game, like always lets you feel like even though there's an element of randomness to it, you still have a chance. Like
1: Yeah. Don't care. Catan does a really was one of the first games that Is it does, Catan
0: but, or Catan? I, I don't think that's I don't know worth debating. No. <laughs> no. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah. Spend <laughs> an hour talking about Yeah. You know, I like i love Catan. And a lot of very serious and like stick your finger on your glasses and push it up your nose kind of gamers will will poo poo with Catan these days. But I think it's a great a great intro into kind of the more serious part of the hobby and i i still enjoy playing it i just uh, like and we even own there's like a novel of the Catan universe which is hilarious and uh, i didn't know that (laughs) yeah it's it's kind of goofy but like it's like there's just there's something about that product and there's i got like a puzzle book before we went on vacation a couple weeks ago that's all these like logic puzzles and stuff set and some very but anyway uh, fantastic fun product. What it does that I think was a first and eye-opening for so many, especially in kind of the American audience, um, is the dice don't just affect the player rolling them. Like when you roll a number, right. whoever's on that resource gets it. And then yeah. even if someone else is doing better than you, but you're still getting some stuff, that still feels good, and it yes. gives you a reason to pay attention to their turns. And like, there's so much about that design that that I just love. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think you talked there's a couple points in there that made me think about um, like testing out games. like so like you've I've been able to like play some of the games that you're working on, like what what we call prototyping, where a game isn't like locked up. like you're still kind of like trying to determine, okay, what part of this game is working, what's not, like what part is fun, what isn't fun, you know, yeah. and so let's talk a little bit about that process. like yeah. why? how do you sort of walk a game through the prototyping process? What does that look like?
1: Yeah. So let me walk back to like the first kind of the first steps of creating a game. I've, I've at this point asked an interesting question. Usually Um, like, how do I capture imposter syndrome in a game? That's kind of light and fun. Uh, then I say, what's a mechanic that can do this. I'm like, Oh, kind of. Uh, and for me, like inspired by Hanabi, if you've ever played that. Yep. Uh, which you hold the cards backwards other people see them i'm like could you do something like that but with kind of a more pressy luck thing so i have a couple mechanics i have kind of a, what the components would be before i show it to anybody else i've got at this point like bins and bins of cubes and dice and little bits and i'll get like a piece of just copy paper and scribble out if there needs to be a board or there needs to be something there uh Or if I need custom cards, I have like a deck of cards that I'll have sleeves that I can like write a little thing on a small piece of paper, slide it in the sleeve. So the card back helps kind of keep that hidden, but I can basically change the face and I'll play it with myself. So um, I usually, if I've written anything down at this point, it's like two or three sentences that's kind of vaguely describes what I'm looking at then I'll just get some components out on the table. And there's really something about the physicality of that, that helps figure out if there's something there or not. Most of my games die basically at that step. I either can't (laughs) figure out how to actually get them on a table, even if it's just me or it's like super impractical to figure out how to do that. Or once I get them on the table and I try to like push some stuff around, I'm like, Oh, this doesn't work at all.
0: Like it's It's just
1: not enjoyable. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's just kind of blah. Uh, Um, Once I've been able to be like, oh, this kind of works, I'll basically play against myself. So, depending on how many players the thing is, I'll set up two or three stations. And, like, if it's a card game, like, I'll play open handed functionally because, like, I can't hide that information from myself and be like, if I were in the seat, what would I do? Right. Um, Go through a few iterations of that kind of working. And then uh, my poor wife has been through so many of the, of these things where i'm like i just need somebody else who like doesn't have all the information to sit across the table and play for me does this right. make sense at all and 80 percent of the time she's like no it doesn't this is terrible uh but it's great feedback and then yeah but for that 20 percent, then i'll find a few people um and at this point the game is hopefully as lightly produced as possible like it's still right. scribbles on copy paper kind of playing cards with sleeves with other little pieces of paper in front of them or little generic cubes that I've stolen from some other game or something like that. And I'll go to work and play, like grab a few poor, poor souls and say, I don't want to play a whole game. I'm just trying to figure out if this is going to work. Can we just play like a couple of turns of this? Uh, We'll even start like give everybody some starting resources. If it's something like that Um, and just see how it feels. And then if I get uh, usually some, the really interesting thing here is at this point, most of these, these people aren't super deep into the hobby. Like they'll play games and I've introduced them to a lot of stuff, but they're not my designer friends who have a lot of the, they would know what mechanics to add and they would know, but these are people that would just look at it and they'd be like, "Eh, like it just, it wasn't fun or I didn't understand what we were doing. And like, the tricky part there is knowing was it not fun because I just wasn't able to communicate it well enough or it just had some big rough eight rough edges and there was still something really interesting there or was it not fun because it just wasn't fun and it was terrible. Right. So I'll kind of take that feedback and process through if I change this, this, and this, is that going to dramatically simplify it and I'll be able to communicate the fun a little bit better. Um, I am fortunate to have, there's a, a group of, kind of amateur and uh kind of medium successful publisher or designers in nashville that uh, especially before the pandemic would get together a couple times a month uh, and that group is really valuable for some of that um they're, they're able to see through some of the the faff of like the faff uh, the the junk the oh, okay like extra bits on the edges of a rough prototype to get to the core thing. They're willing to tolerate a lot more. Let's, let's say that. Right. Um, But they kind of on the flip side have a curse of knowledge of, they will often see the good in everything and they will, their suggestions aren't as much like, Oh, it wasn't fun as much as they might be like, Oh, you should try out these mechanics or they will be very specific and very prescriptive and i find that you kind of need both types of feedback you need some of that just raw like in consumer emotional like uh, and you also need some people that understand the space enough to give you more technical pointers because you may you may look at it and like a lot of games have kind of hidden cost structures and economics that lie underneath them on like how much an opportunity cost one action is versus another and things like that Uh, most like day-to-day game players don't process games that way, but designers do. And so they can help you see like, oh, your costing's just off on this. If you fix that, it's going to make everything
0: else work dramatically better. Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you can draw parallels to any sort of creative field that it's useful having critics on both sides. Like Like a range of critics where you have critics that are gonna be completely impartial and don't understand your craft like if you're a musician that aren't musicians you know and that aren't going to you notice notice like that you didn't hit the pitch or that you like the chord Mm -hmm. progression wasn't correct or whatever you know to people who are those level of experts so that you're creating at a level that hits everyone because i think the best kinds of art if you're using that term for all creative output, like the best kinds of art resonate with everyone. Like it's universal, right? Like there's a lot of movies that are, you know, when you have these film festivals, you'll have movies that like are acclaimed movies that like the high-end directors and the high-end film community loves, but like the average moviegoer is just like, this didn't make any sense to me. And it's yeah, like, it's too experimental. It's like, I couldn't understand what you were trying to say or express and it wasn't fun to watch, right? And yep. so yeah the same with game design like you want it you want people who aren't hardcore game fans to still like be able to sit down and enjoy playing the game yeah. right yeah. and um, those are the games that last and a lot of that um also comes down to audience like
1: there's a time and a place for art house films as much as there is for yeah. whatever the latest michael bay summer blockbuster we just <laughs> show a bunch no. of explosions yeah <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. uh, but there's a place for that there's a place for like throwaway pop music as much as there is for intricate weirdly timed jazz improv that's gonna yeah, yeah. Uh, and understanding what you're trying to create as you're getting into it is critical to knowing how much to listen to what types of feedback what type of feedback to seek out like if i'm building something that's a little more complex i'm probably i may even bypass the work group altogether and go just to kind of the people that i know are going to be able to understand it at least until it's in a more streamlined and usable spot Um, right and at the same time i'm not going to go to that really hardcore group with something that's like a fluffy game fluffy thing at least at the very start to make sure that the emotional beats are right on it
0: yeah Um, exactly yeah
1: yeah and there's a another piece and i think this is a good time to talk about it sure um another piece of game design that gets really interesting when you start to think about it as a product Mm -hmm. and not just as something you do like yes um to get it past the prototype stage, to get it to the next thing, you have to start really asking the question of who is this for? Uh, What kind of emotional and financial investment and time investment would they be willing to, to put into this experience? And not that you have to have, uh, and again, this is one of those, like I've started to dabble in this side of the world and I would, I would not say I figured it out because I haven't published anything and gone through the full process, but what I know of it, like, If you have a game that's really light and fun and random and it lasts 15 minutes and someone's only going to play it once, you can't have a hundred dollars worth of giant custom components in there. Like it's just not going to match the kind of end experience you're trying to get to create the cow game that you've played that um, that particular game is probably the one I've gotten the furthest in the process. And I've talked to a few publishers about it and I've had it play tested dozens, if not hundreds of times from all skill levels and all this thing. And there's a really core interesting loop in it and it's a ton of components and a little bit too much complexity for kind of the, the, the audience random, for. Yeah. Yeah. The like kind of somewhat goofy, somewhat fast and silly kind of gameplay that it is like it would end up being yeah. a 50 or $60 game with like a $20 experience. And that's not gonna, it's just not going to work. Um, yeah. And it takes about twice as long as it, like the fun runs out. I shouldn't even say runs out, just the hump of education it takes to figure out how to play it the first time is fine when it's my family and friends and they're willing to tolerate a little bit of explanation. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the experience of somebody like opening a box and trying to read it from a piece of paper for the first time is does not line up with the complexity of the game. Yeah. Uh, so there's a really interesting piece of game design uh, that I mean there's parallels in other forms of art too like yeah which should be pretty easy to draw but games have such a very distinct uh kind of cost from the user piece yeah. that goes into it that's so much more clear than some of the other
0: well I mean it comes it goes back to what we were talking about near the beginning that it's like an interactive medium right and so you're you're ex- for people to be able to interact with your game, they need to be able to invest that time to learn the game for the first time. Yeah. And there needs to be this you know, time reward trade-off, right? Like, OK, it's going to take me, I need to play this game for the first time, and it's going to take however long. Am I going to enjoy it enough that I'm willing to invest that yeah. so that the next time I play it, it's even more fun? preparation for this like I was listening to a few different podcasts like about game design and the concept came up about um, a term called handles or mm-hmm. anchor points which I thought was really yep. fascinating which essentially means is if you're creating a game try not to make it all something that's going to be brand new to somebody but have like sort of like anchor points that it's like oh well, I don't understand the whole thing but I understand this aspect yep. so like similar to like say you might not know how to play settlers of Catan but you know, Like you've played Monopoly, so you understand the whole like bartering, like the idea of bartering and trading things back and forth and that kind of thing. So that you're not sort of feel like you're in the middle of an ocean starting from nothing, but you've got a little bit of land to start building. And then the rest of the game kind of starts to make sense.
1: Yeah, and Um, there's a piece of um, a lot of your audience is probably familiar with the design of everything or the design of everyday things. Uh, And the idea of affordances when it comes to like practical product and visual design where you're trying to like don't put a push handle on a pull door kind of thing is the classic, classic illustration. There's a ton of parallels to that in the gaming world where sometimes those kind of patterns of thought and behavior can actually hurt a designer if they're flipping something against the norm of that behavior. Right, if you're uh, going against the grain. Yeah, but at the same time, they're incredibly valuable to, it's like, oh, have you played a deck building game before? We can cut out the first half of this rules explanation. Here's the yep. like slight tweak to what that is, and then here's the interesting thing that this game adds. Yeah, uh, But you almost have to build up a library of experiences to be able to play a lot of the bigger, heavier games out there uh, yep. until you've played a lot of those kind of more straightforward they just do this one thing really well and it's really easy to teach and then you can incorporate
0: multiple systems like that right and there's it feels like there are a lot of games out there that are they take classic games and just take that concept and evolve it like you've got risk which is a little bit more of a complicated game, but not once you get into it, it's not. But then if you've ever played axes and allies, which is <laughs> a, a game we got yeah. into in college, yeah. like that's a four hour game yeah. and it's like, it's risk on steroids and it's really fun. But if, if you have played risk, it makes it a lot easier. But from your experience, like what advice would you give to somebody out there? Like maybe someone like much younger yeah. or like our age, um, and I say that because I remember making my first game when I was like twelve, because I loved games yeah. since like the beginning. And I remember like sitting down with a piece of cardboard and making different games. And so, what kind of like sort of universal advice could we give to people who are interested in creating their own games or like taking that game development a little bit farther?
1: Yeah. So the first thing I'd say, specifically in the game space, uh, play a lot of games. You you aren't going to design a great game until you've played a lot of games and a lot of different genres and types and timeframes and figure out what really resonates with you in that space. Um, if it's the type of thing, which I know, this is kind of my experience growing up. Like I had two or three games that I played over and over and over and over and over again. And, and that's great. Um, but if you want to create something new, you're going to need a lot more diverse experience than just kind of whatever that one game is that you've sunk your entire social time into. Um, the other thing I'd say is find, find people to help introduce you to some of those things. Uh, gamers on the whole, especially tabletop gamers, um, have a bad rap is sometimes being a little socially awkward and sometimes it's, it's true and, and all that thing, but it's one of the most open and welcoming kind of communities that I've seen for a creative space. And even uh, designers and publishers are all really just there for the love of the hobby. Nobody is, I shouldn't say nobody, 99% of the people hmm. in the tabletop industry are not there for a, uh, getting rich. And if you want to make a lot of money, like it is not definitely not a career path mm. to perceive. Um, but exactly. Some people make a living at it, but it is hard, hard, hard work. But that said, the people who are okay. there love welcoming new people into the space. And so there's a ton of online communities. There's a lot of almost every even medium sized city and up has some sort of regular meetup or, um, uh, regular conventions and and a couple quick Google searches can kind of point people there. Um, And if there happens to be a friendly local game store in the area, like a lot of those are kind of the community hubs for those things. So get plugged into that. Uh, The other thing I'd say, which we didn't really talk about a lot, but I would say if you want, and I think this is true for any creative endeavor. If you want to create something, don't just focus on the medium you want to create in understand the principles of what you're trying to do um, in a whole lot of other medium media too so read books okay. watch movies listen to music and study kind of the art and creation of those and even if you're not like i'm not naturally talented in those other areas but listening to some of the podcasts about them or reading some of the books. Or having basic understandings of principles of graphic design or whatever it is, um, yeah. give me better perspective and language and ideas for kind of the thing that I can create, so to speak. Um, and it's super valuable with that.
0: Yeah, I would echo that too because, like, I haven't t- haven't even thought about creating a game since. I guess, middle school. um, But have just loved board games ever since. And anybody who knows me for more than five minutes knows that, like, that's one of my favorite things to do, have game night. And for doing this podcast, like, I, like, found myself diving into reading a lot about game development and, like, listening to a few podcasts and, like, looking at websites. And it's easy to sort of, like, just spend time doing, like, like creative research in the areas that we naturally gravitate yeah. to but i learned so much when i take time to do research in a different creative field like when i started the podcast like like researching other podcasts and what works and like what people like and all of that was super fascinating. And same with this, like reading more about game design and like some of these terms and like some of the thought process that goes into it and what you gravitate towards and how you build it out of an idea is just super fascinating. So I would completely agree with that point. Like just dive into other areas and a rising tide raises all ships. So learn about other creative stuff and it will help you in no matter what creative field you in yeah absolutely so, well Jim this has been super fun I could talk about board games <laughs> literally all day um, and play them all day too um, but thank you so much for taking time to uh, talk with us and share a bit about your love of games and just a little bit what goes behind the scenes of, of making one yeah I really appreciate it
1: thank you so much Mark this has been a delight
0: and there we go So what stood out to me over and over again in our conversation is the unique analytical, mathematical, and at times almost scientific framework that Jim brings to his creative process. I think it's easy to draw a line between the arts and sciences and think creativity is only found on one side and not the other. But as we just heard, a huge part of the creative process in game design is about choosing and combining different types of Math and science, like game mechanics, rules of probability, commerce systems, choosing a social scenario and a structure of your game, all of that. So, if anything, game design is a solid example of creativity flourishing on the more scientific side of our brain. Thanks again to Jim for sharing with us some of what you've learned in your ongoing journey into game design. I really hope he's able to find a publisher interested in helping him launch one of his game ideas, because... I've played a few of them and they're pretty awesome. That's it for this episode. Don't forget to hit the subscribe or follow button and share this with your friends. You can also follow us on social media on Instagram or Facebook at The Matchbox Creative. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode.